Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. So you were suspicious. Oh, hell yes. That's the evilest thing you could do. Odds are, if there's a murder, then one of the big three are involved. Money, love, or jealousy. Well, that's what it was here. But then there was one here. And there was one here. One of the things he was talking about up there was a guy named Jeremiah. Any of your notes reflect that? This is part two of episode 10, For Whom the Bell Tolls. There's also our season one finale. I'm your host, David Payne. Tonight, we are talking to two independent journalists. was recently the subject of a podcast. We're investigating the Wales murder in a new podcast called Somebody Payne and Gottlieb believe their own investigation is what has drummed up new interest. I have a prepaid call from Scott Kibble, an inmate at a Colorado correctional facility. He was telling me that somebody had wanted Wales dead, and they had hired his street gang to do the job, and he indicated that he was involved in it, and explained that they'd stake him out and shot him through a window of his house, then hauled ass out of town and threw the gun into a river that flows underneath I-5. Just another Wednesday. On the phone talking with a serial killer about what he told the FBI about Tom Wales' murder, Yes, it's that Scott Lee Kimball, episode three. And if you're just joining this podcast now to find out what happened in the Tom Wales murder case, stop and go back to the beginning, because the rest of this episode will make no sense whatsoever. But fastidious listeners will remember the story about Jeremiah. So the biggest thing that we were curious about was the whole Jeremiah connection and what that was all about. Who is Jeremiah? He was a guy that was in prison. For what? No, I have no idea. I don't remember what he was in prison for. Gang banging drugs from like that. And what was your interaction with him? Uh, we were just cellmates. Sort of describe Jeremiah for us. He was about, I want to say, 5'11", 6 foot, maybe 190 pounds, brown curly hair, white tattoos. And how did he get connected with whales? You know, I don't know the exact connection. I just knew that in the conversation that I had heard with him that it came across as that uh, he was hired. Him and his gang were hired to take care of this. From what I understand, it was somebody that had had an ex-relationship with Wales. I thought it was a ex-relationship of prosecution. Mm-hmm. It was led to me to believe and was insinuated to believe. How did you become close enough with Jeremiah for him to be calling you? 
we got to know each other in jail, and then uh, when I told the uh, FBI what I learned, that they got me a cell phone and said, well, keep in touch with this guy, and then they said, okay, well, he's actually going to be getting out of jail sometime soon, so we're going to fly to Seattle and have you available if he wants to meet with you. And he told me where they possessed the gun. So they wanted me to be sure that I was available for him. Did Jeremiah ever share with you who had hired him and why they wanted him dead? From the way I understand, I didn't get a name, but I understood that it was somebody who had a personal vendetta against Wales, and it was somebody who had he had a past with. And it sounds to me like it was something personal, like maybe he prosecuted somebody or something of that nature. But it was like uh, this person had a real hatred for him. And as we listen to Kimball's shifting explanation of what Jeremiah told him about who might have killed Tom Wales, I think we're going to have to agree with Bone and wash him out as well. But didn't you say something about prostitution? And the reason I ask that is that Wales never prosecuted anything related to sex crimes or anything in the like. No, no, I never said prostitution. I said prosecution. Okay, got it. Yeah, no, that's why I said he was white. But before we put this whole saga behind us, we couldn't, of course, leave without asking the biggest open question of all. I guess I should ask you, were you in Seattle in October of 2001? Um, I was in Seattle. That's correct. There was a suggestion that you may have had something to do with the Wales murder since you were in Seattle at the time. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I, I had heard that before, but of course I wasn't involved in it. And of course, we didn't really expect a different answer. Although with Scott Lee Kimball, it's probably hard to ever know what is true. But on one topic, Kimball did make a point that gave us pause. The FBI is like a dog with a bone. Once he gets that idea of that bone in his mouth, you can't get him to look at you, you can't get him to roll over, you can't get him to sit, because he's convinced that that bone, they get something in their mind, and they don't want to be wrong. Nobody wants to admit a mistake. And I mean, they got me out of prison to help them, and I killed four people. They had never said that was a mistake on their part. And this phone conversation, as odd as it was, was a microcosm of our investigation of the Tom Wales case. It seemed like everyone had an angle or agenda. And truth be told, I started to worry a little bit about whether we were developing our own. Only on Cairo 7 tonight, we are talking to two independent journalists who say they have become experts on the unsolved murder of Tom what Wales. What are the biggest questions you have at this point about Thomas Wales's murder? I'd like to know if they explored any other theories outside the pilot. Is showing you why those local journalists call today's developments just a dog and pony show, Joanna. When we got into this story nine months ago, all we knew was that it was an unsolved murder. We didn't know who the players or even what the theories were. But every day, it was just becoming more apparent. There was more to this story than the unofficial official version, which was there simply wasn't enough evidence to bring a case against the FBI's prime suspect, Steve Jackson. In the background, there was always this weird thing going on with the FBI and the family of Tom Wales. They both wanted us to stand down, and it made us wonder what facts they were working from, that they wouldn't welcome new attention after all these years. But whenever these concerns reared their head, 
we simply reminded ourselves. Before we ever knew who Tom Wales was, the FBI had tried for 16 years to get the guy in their sights, and they hadn't been able to make a case. So after all this external and self-examination, what was true? Did Mikhail Zako really have information about a Bosnian hitman who killed Tom? Did someone silence Wales for his work on gun control? Was there a jealous boyfriend lurking in the backyard with a Makarov? Did the pilot buy a replacement barrel in Tenasket that could be traced to the killing? Was McClung involved in the murder as an accomplice? Was the pilot simply an innocent man, angry over the government's overreach in the helicopter case? And just what was going on there? And if we wanted to solve this murder, need we look no further than case CR00249? That was a funky prosecution anyway. The whole thing was was kind of strange. But I don't recall anything else jumping out from that case except for how unusually angry people were at what was really, I mean, it was a misdemeanor. It was an infraction against the company. Everybody else had been dismissed out at the time the plea was signed. You know, nobody was named per se. It was Intrex that pled to the deal. And Carter wasn't the only journalist confused by the case and what it meant. So was Tubin some six years later. It's just a bizarre case. And I had no idea that the underlying conduct was even a crime. And Wales' fixation on it was kind of bizarre because it wasn't like was accused of stealing from people, hurting people, even placing people in real danger. It was this peculiar case about how and whether you can retrofit helicopters. And you can certainly understand why was bitter and angry that he had been pursued for so long. But where I kept getting stuck was understanding how anger as a motive fit this fact pattern. Sure, anger is the core ingredient to heat-of-the-moment crimes, but this didn't feel like that. But to be more accurate, the evidence didn't suggest heat of the moment, given the careful planning and lack of evidence left behind. Not just our opinion. Listen to former U.S. Attorney Mike McKay just last month. The killer was familiar with Tom's property and his work habits. He was careful on the night of the murder to avoid setting off floodlights in the yard that were attached to motion detectors, leading investigators to believe that this was a carefully planned execution. They call premeditated murder cold-blooded, precisely because anger is not present. Plus, the thing about crimes of passion, like second-degree murder, is that they typically happen when there is no relief valve for the pent-up anger. But in the pilot's case, there was an outlet for his frustrations. Payback in court. Immediately after the dismissal of the helicopter case, the pilot and his attorney, Larry Setchell, filed a well-researched and protracted malicious prosecution complaint against the government, which was still pending at the time of Wales' death, and which they firmly believed they would win. And one of the things most interesting about that lawsuit was that the majority of the pilot's anger seemed directed at the FAA, not at Wales. 
While that lawsuit is the product of a disgruntled litigant, there were certain anomalies cited that had also caught my attention when I was independently researching the helicopter case. And at the top of my list was the curious appearance in that case of a man named Ricky Boatwright. Another dirt road. At least the sun's out. <laughs> I think this is the first sunny day we've had in this project. Is anybody there? I don't see any cars. What is here? Nope. Uh, what do you think we call them? Hi, is this Ricky? No. Mr. Boatwright? Yeah. We have literally flown 2,000 miles to see if we could come talk to you for 15 minutes. So it's okay. Thursday. We're in Corsicana, Texas. We're at a Burger King, and we're speaking with Ricky Boatwright. Thanks for joining us, Ricky. You're welcome. Ricky, why don't you just... Ricky Boatwright is a gun-toting, God-fearing Sunday school teacher and former helicopter mechanic who's agreed to meet us to discuss his connection to the Wales helicopter case some 20 years ago. The last time we saw the helicopter at the heart of that case, it was being taken apart by FAA inspectors in John Hearn's Linden hangar. But in 1996, following the mysterious and fatal crash of Ken Karatu's ultralight, the pilot, Steve Jackson, and his partner, Kim Powell, would have the helicopter shipped to Texas to finish work on it and get it certified for flight. And one of the first things I want to know is how on earth Boatwright came to be personally named as a conspirator in the helicopter case. He wasn't even a defendant. I showed you a document, had you read it just a a moment ago. This was the plea agreement on the outcome of that case when they dismissed the case. And in this document, it is alleged that Kim Powell and you met sometime between April and June of 1996 to falsify record logs on this helicopter. This specifically says that you got together to falsify the books and change the records. No, right? What we did was we took records of the other mechanics that had done work on the airplane, right, and verified it and stuck it together, right? And I signed off on a logbook saying... I certified that this is a Bell 204B helicopter in number so-and-so, so-and-so. This is a, a the allegation in the plea that Kim Powell would sign on behalf of Intrex Helicopters, Inc. was that the three men, Powell, Boatwright, and Steve Jackson, the pilot, had cooked the books because they contained signed work orders by Ken Karatu dated 1996, two years after he died in the ultralight crash. Did you know any of the other mechanics who worked on the helicopter? No, I didn't know them, right? But there was a signature and an A&P number and a date, right? I've got no reason to question or go back and say, well, who is this guy or anything like that? I have to honor his signature because that's what the rule books tell me to do. Did you know after this happened that they had put your name in this plea agreement? Did somebody contact you? Or- nope. Don't know nothing about no plea agreement. Was the first time that we showed it to you? That's was the first, first time, time I ever saw it. Do you remember meeting... I think I met him one time, right? And I think he did bring me a check or something other on there, but I never had any conversations with him about the airplane or anything like that. 
and I wouldn't recognize him if he walked up and bit me, right? You know, but me and Kim was the ones that did all the transactions yeah. and stuff. So most of your dealings or all your dealings were with Kim Powell? Yes. You didn't falsify logbooks with but No, right? No, right? Like I said, we constituted a logbook, right? And there's provisions in the regs to do that. I mean, this airplane was totaled out there somewhere, right? They ain't no logbooks gonna come with it. PHI, if you go look at their logbooks, you know what their logbooks look like? It's a folding piece of paper that's in a book that's eight and a half by 11, right? It's not like a little logbook that goes in a general aviation aircraft logbook. Why do you think Powell signed off on this allegation? I don't know if I was Powell and I'd done fool with it as long as he had, I'd just want it to go away, right? I mean, you know, people keep messing with you so long, right? Pretty soon you just throw your hands up and say, hey, whatever. And for the umpteenth time in this story, here again, I'm reminded how random life can be. Here's a guy living out in tiny Purdon, Texas, scraping out a living as a Bell helicopter mechanic. And he comes into contact with two guys from Bellingham who eventually get him tied up with the Tom Wales murder investigation. And I can't help but ask, how? Well, I bumped into Kim Powell up at Gary Hyman's place up in Cleveland, Texas, up at Helitex. And Kim was saying that he was having a hard time getting the helicopter put back together and getting it certified in the Seattle area. Right, and said the FAA wouldn't do anything for him or anything like that. And I told him, well, I said, you truck it down to Texas and we'll finish putting it together and we'll do what other modifications or whatever you want on it, right? And we'll see if we can get it certified down there. How long did you work on the helicopter down here? Down here in Texas, I probably worked on it for about three months. After you finished working on it, what was the process? Did you take it to get it approved? So after the repairs were done to the airplane to make it back into serviceable condition, it had to have a tight inspection on it. So we asked the FAA man to come down, who was Gene Bland, and he did an inspection on the airplane and double-checked all of our work. And once it was done, he issued an airworthiness certificate for the aircraft. Now... The FAA inspector that Boatwright and Powell sought sign-off from was a man named Gene Bland. Bland was a 16-year veteran of the FAA, as well as a Vietnam vet and an accomplished airplane mechanic. We had seen his name, too, in the malicious prosecution brief filed by the pilot's attorney, Larry Setchell. And, of course, Jody and I wouldn't be able to rest until we found him. And when we did, maybe for the first time in this whole investigation things started making common sense, although not necessarily at first. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. You're going to go down this road about a mile and a half, and he'll be a little ways down on your left-hand okay. side. That's well, I guess, interesting. I guess he's expecting us now. Probably wondering who we are. The whole town is like... And we're, and we're in the middle of nowhere. Why is there a gated town out here? Maybe this is a whole CIA retirement front. Maybe this is the Air America. <laughs> retirement community? Yeah. In half a mile, the destination is on your left. I 
I'm just going to get some audio levels here. David, if you wouldn't mind. The rain in Spain falls mainly in the plains. Gene, <laughs> speak to me in your regular voice. The rain in Spain falls mainly on the Spaniards. There. <laughs> Indeed it does. Okay, so... Today is Saturday. We're in Nakona, Texas. 2018. And we're here with Gene Bland. Hello, Gene. For the second time in a matter of weeks, Jody and I find ourselves in the cluttered office of a former aviator in Texas. And I'm starting to wonder if this is what my life has come to. It had taken us weeks to track down Bland, and it was touch and go on whether we could talk our way past the guardhouse. But when we did, we found out we weren't the first ones who had tracked down former FAA Inspector Bland about this case. Twelve years ago, FBI agents Ron Bone and Dave Sousa had been there too. And they told me that this was about the Tom Wells murder. And they wanted to ask me what I knew about it. And eventually they said, well, would you be interested in taking a polygraph? Did they ask you if you killed Tom Wales? They asked that, and then they asked if I knew who did it. Did they ask you about any particular handguns? Yeah, they did. They asked me if I knew what a Makarov was. Did they just ask out of the blue if you had a Makarov? No, they just asked me if I knew what it was. To understand how it came to pass that the lead case agents in the Wales murder investigation were in Texas, five years after the crime, polygraphing a former FAA inspector about a Makarov and his possible involvement in the killing, we probably need to explain how it was that Bland became involved in the helicopter case in the first place. One of my inspection authorization holders that was a helicopter mechanic was Ricky Boatwright. He came in my office with Kim Powell, and they brought a whole two boxes full of aircraft records and documents, and they wanted a replacement airworthiness certificate for the Bell 204B. And I... Securing this 204B replacement airworthiness certificate for the helicopter would be literal gold for Powell and Steve Jackson, the pilot. With it, they could fly the helicopter as a civilian aircraft, which would open it up for use in firefighting and other uses where you had to ferry passengers. Bland would inspect their documents and issue that replacement certificate for Kim Powell and the pilot's helicopter. And that paperwork would leave a paper trail that would lead Wales to Bland some three years later and the FBI to him some five years after that. So what was the next thing that happened? Well, I didn't know it at the time, but this aircraft was on a hit list by the DOT Office of Inspector General as suspected unapproved parts. When I inspected the aircraft, I didn't do a complete conformity. I only inspected the parts that were modified, but it appeared to me to be a valid aircraft. It was a 204B made by Bell as a civilian aircraft. It was never a military aircraft. The one I saw was a Bell... What Bland is talking about is an aircraft conformity inspection. Bland's review of the helicopter's paperwork and later the aircraft itself would lead him to conclude that Powell and Jackson's helicopter was not a military model being retrofitted, but actually at its core, it was a Bell Civilian 204B. And that opinion would get Bland sideways with his bosses at the FAA. It would also directly contradict the case Wales was building against Powell and Jackson. In fact, the government's whole theory was that the merging of military and civilian parts on a helicopter 
would make it inherently unsafe because military parts didn't go through the type of rigorous testing that civilian parts did. And here was a veteran FAA inspector and a helicopter mechanic down in Texas calling BS. So Bell Helicopter was saying that these parts were inferior to civilian certified parts, right? And that you couldn't use them on a civilian machine. Why? Why was Bell Helicopter saying that? I have no earthly idea. I'm just a lowly mechanic, right? But I would assume because that they didn't want them parts to come out on the market so that you could buy a part cheaper than you'd be buying it from Bell. And as Bland and Boatwright were recounting their stories to us, I finally realized what we had here. A ground's eye view from two infantrymen in a war that had been brewing for years between Bell helicopters and the FAA on the one hand and the operators who wanted to exploit Bell's surplus parts on the other. We kept getting air ordinance directives from the FAA saying, be careful, right, these are bogus parts and all like this, check the part numbers. And it looked like to a bunch of us, right, was that Bell was losing sales because the war wasn't going on no more and they wasn't selling large amounts of parts to anybody. And just like that, the pieces started to fall into place and we started to see the outlines of a possible motive for murder. And the things we had learned months ago from defense attorney and former AUSA Bob Chadwell and about the unexplainable pursuit of this single helicopter now finally had a context. Why was Bill so interested in this? Was it a business issue or a safety issue? Money. Basically because the view from our side of the table was that the government was being led down the primrose path by investigators who'd been led down the primrose path by Bell Textron. And according to former FAA inspector Bland, when he explained all this primrose path leading to the FBI some five years after the Wales murder, they actually seemed grateful to finally have some context to the helicopter case that they believed was tied to Wales' death. Did they ask you if you killed Tom Wales? They asked that, and then they asked if I knew who did it, if I knew anything about it. What was your reaction to that Nothing. line of question? No, I... Didn't phase you at all? It, no, it didn't seem to me because they were really doing an investigation. They're trying to get some facts. I don't think they were trying to trip me up. I think they were trying to actually find facts to put kind of the questions you guys are asking. Yeah. You're trying to find out what is all this about? This is, there's a lot involved here. They had been working on it for several years. They didn't have any good leads. And some of the things I told them, they were appreciative. That's why they asked me to go for the polygraph because I give them a scenario about the Bell helicopter deal and about how this came about and the money involved and so on. And they said that, you know, we may work on an investigation for several years and all we get is documents and things. And until we finally, we meet somebody like yourself and it, you really clarified a lot of things. What Bland says he clarified in that polygraph that he claims he passed with flying colors was this war between Bell helicopters and the operators determined to make a profit on their surplus parts. And underneath, 
this complex relationship between the government and Bell. And if the FAA had been co-opted to help, well then FAA Inspector Gene Bland wasn't exactly cooperating with another federal agency, the one he worked for. In fact, the Seattle FAA office was trying to keep that aircraft grounded following their fine-tooth inspection of the helicopter in John Hearn and Ken Caratu's hangar two years prior. And that was the problem that Kim Powell was having up in Seattle, right, was that you can't do this and you can't do that. So when he brought the airplane down here to Texas, well, Gene Bland, our FAA man that was down here, and he don't tell you you can't do this. He tells you how you can go about doing it. And Bland told Powell and Jackson, the pilot, just how to do it, how to get their birds certified and in the air. And when he issued that replacement airworthiness certificate for the helicopter, it didn't earn him a pat on the back from his bosses at the FAA. It got him a subpoena from Tom Wales. A subpoena that led to questions about why Bland would okay this helicopter for flight. When I went out to testify before the federal grand jury in Seattle, they had briefed me to say... They wanted me to testify about my involvement with the Bell 204B. Kim Powell's helicopter. Kim Powell's aircraft, and it belonged to a guy named Powell. I never met but Powell I had met at one time in my office, and again when I went out to do some approvals on some modifications that Mr. Boatwright had done to the aircraft. So you went to Seattle for the Grand Jury. And for reasons you will understand again, we're now going to need to bleep out another name in this part of the story. One belonging to someone we'll refer to simply as the FAA special agent. So when I got out there, I met the assistant U.S. attorney, Tom Wales. He introduced me, took me downstairs, introduced me to a special agent with the FAA security branch. What was his name? And he brought me into a conference room with a large oval-shaped table. And then he excused himself and left. Who did? Uh, Wales? Wales did. Okay. So there was just me and in the room. Well, they had me sit at one end of this table, and sat on the opposite side at the far end, and he had a whole bunch of papers stacked up between me and him next to his arm, and he had a small stack of documents in front of me, and I could see that they were FAA Form 337s, and I could also see that they were not for the helicopter. They were for my personal aircraft. Why would those be there? That's the question I had. I said, something's not right here. Something didn't seem right to us either. We didn't like the optics at all. Who was this special agent and what was he up to? If they brought me all the way out here to talk about a helicopter, why are they showing me my own personal aircraft? It has nothing to do with the gaze. What happened? So I told, I'm not going to be able to talk to you. He says, why not? I said, I'm out here on a subpoena to talk to the grand jury about a specific helicopter, and that's it. What did you think he was doing by bringing your aircraft? Uh, aircraft? Personal yeah. aircraft? I think he was going to try to find something on me so that he could own me so that I would lie to the grand jury. What did he want you to say to the grand jury? Well... We didn't get to that because I cut him off. I says, I'm not going to talk to you about that. And he says, why not? I says, well, because I've got a security clearance and I'm using my aircraft 
with another agency. Bland tells us he works for several different federal agencies, providing aviation consulting services which require a high-level security clearance, something that prevented him from talking further with the FAA special agent. So describe sort of that interaction and what that was like in the room. Well, the next thing I said is that I don't understand why you're spending so much government money on this project, on this helicopter, because there's no merit in your case and that it's a waste of government money. As soon as I said that, he jumps up out of his chair, he starts pounding on the table with his fist, and he starts frothing at the mouth. He actually had saliva coming out of the corner of his mouth, and he was so angry that his body was just tense. And I hadn't done anything but just say that. So why would he be so pissed about this? I think he's nuts that he was so angry, and that why would anybody be so angry over a case? We're not supposed and to as he was saying that, I was thinking to myself, I can think of a few reasons why a special agent might be. At the time, did you feel like he was personally invested? Yeah, yeah. There's got to be a reason why he got so angry, and when I wouldn't cooperate with him, he started making threats. Like what? If you don't do what we want you to do, we're going to come after you. Why would they come after you? I hadn't done anything wrong. I said, something really stinks here. This doesn't pass the smell test. If this was on the up and up, I would be subpoenaed to testify about other things. But the only thing it says, I was supposed to bring all the documents that had anything to do with this one helicopter. Powell's helicopter. I knew how he felt. No matter where we turned, it always seemed to come down to that one helicopter. Who called you in to testify in front of the grand jury? Uh, I think Tom Wales came out and brought me in, and they swore me in under oath. What were the questions? Well, the initial briefing was that the aircraft was fraudulent because it was converted from a military aircraft. So I asked for clarification. I said, if you said that this was converted from a U.S. military aircraft, what kind of an aircraft was it converted from? He said, it doesn't matter. Who's Tom Wills. And that's when you asked for clarification on that? Yeah, and I said that it has a flat bulkhead, the 204 does. You can't convert a UH-1B into a 204B. And so they asked me, why not? I says, well, for one, the tail cone is different, and the holes don't line up and the bolts don't fit. So you're saying, essentially, in the grand jury that the Kim Powell helicopter wasn't even a conversion? From no, it was a Bell 204. It came out of the factory from Bell as a civilian Bell 204B helicopter. How did the grand jury or Tom Wales react to that? The grand jury, their mouth came open and they looked like they were shocked. They hadn't heard anything like that before. How did Wales take that testimony when you gave it? Did he challenge it or did he no, back down? He didn't he didn't really show any emotion about it. He uh he just matter of fact and when I told him And that, while Wales may have been matter of fact, the FAA special agent who was allegedly frothing at the mouth was most certainly not. Was standing there as I walked out and I looked at him and he was froth, he was angry, he was stiff. He was so mad, he, he just had his eyes squinted and his teeth, and, and, and uh, he was practically shaking. 
So I looked at him and I smiled and I said, have a nice day, and I walked on. Inspector Gene Bland wasn't the only one getting the stink eye. It seemed like anybody who ever touched this jinxed bird was headed to some sort of confrontation with the feds. When was the next thing you heard about this helicopter? Well, I heard that the thing was impounded or whatever, right? And then the next thing I know, here's two FBI guys that comes down to my shop. Describe for me what happened on this particular day. Well, two guys showed up and they were saying that, well, did you know that it was a military machine? I said, no, it wasn't no military machine. And I told them I know just about as much about rebuilding one of these things as they did. And they said, well, we know the law too. And I said, well, okay. They was kind of arguing with me about that. And they told me that my FAA inspector, they were investigating him for doing something wrong. And I said, no, that ain't going to work, you know. I said, Gene Bland, don't do that. And they kind of got honorary with me and told them to leave and don't come back. And then a, a month or so later, I guess it was, them same guys showed up out in the middle of the night. And they come out there with a subpoena or something or other to go to a grand jury in Seattle. And Boatwright would go to that grand jury, along with Gene Bland, who would be called back to Seattle a second time to talk about this one Bell helicopter. And they were asking me all kinds of questions and stating facts that we couldn't rebuild an airplane like that. And I told them, if you've got enough money and you've got enough time, you can rebuild anything, right? How did the um, grand jury take that testimony? Well, they asked me a few more questions and stuff, and they seemed to be pretty interested, but the lawyer didn't seem to be too interested in it. He wanted to change the subject. The prosecutor? Whoever that guy was. And while Tom Wales may have wanted to change the subject, the grand jury didn't seem so keen to. Who was doing the questioning in the second grand jury? Some of the grand jury was. Directly the grand jury? Yeah, yeah. And was there an assistant United States attorney in there, too, or not? Yes, Tom Wales was in there. But he wasn't driving the questions the no. grand jury was? Yeah. Huh. So your sense of this was that the grand jury wanted more information, they subpoena you back, and they just want to clarify, and they talked to all these other people to validate what you had told them? You know, they were so surprised when I testified the first time by giving testimony that contrary to what they'd been hearing all along. All of a sudden, they wanted more information. Bland was so unnerved by his experiences at the Seattle Grand Jury that when he got home to Texas, he started asking around, and all sorts of trouble would follow. One day, I was called into the manager's office, and they told me that I was having all my assignments taken away, and I was under an investigation. So I had some friends that worked in law enforcement, and one of them was a detective, he came in there one night, and he had a. He says, I figured this out. It's about Bell Helicopters. Well, then I realized, well, it's about this Bell Helicopter. So I called a guy, this Kim Powell, and I asked him about it. And he told me that it were all of these aircraft were under uh, investigation. So I actually went down there to a meeting and met the owners of the aircraft, and they were all had the same story. And they had had the aircraft seized. Where was this meeting? In Houston. And there were how many people there, roughly? I was over 20. And at this meeting of 20 or so helicopter operators, all the pieces would start coming together for Bland when he would learn about and later obtain 
a copy of a memo that sounds like something straight out of a John Grisham novel. I saw a document with a Bell letterhead signed by a contract administrator from Bell, written to the Bell attorney. And share with us what the letter said? It said, per your instructions, written to the Bell attorney, the following people have been paid for their participation in the Bell 204 retirement program. And what does that mean, Bell 204 retirement program? Well, they were trying to take these aircraft out of service. When you talk about the Bell retirement program, you're not talking about a 401k. You're talking about a plan to mothball. Yes. Mothball all old military helicopters. Yes. So that what would happen? So that they could sell new ones to the government. How much money are we talking about here? Oh, it's millions of dollars. There were about 20 aircraft, maybe more, on the hit list. And each one of these aircraft is worth anywhere from a million to three and a half million dollars. And a brand new helicopter, what would that cost? About four times that. I felt like there was evidence to me that there were people in the government that were being paid off by Bell. There were people in Bell that were involved in a conspiracy to take these aircraft out of service. And that that might And the motive was that they wanted to sell the new aircraft for the government contracts. That was what was behind it. Money. Money. Yeah. And it paraphrased what it said. It said, per your instructions, all of the people that are participating in the Bell 204 retirement program have been paid, and they gave a list of names. Some of the people work for the Department of Transportation Office of Inspector General. Some of the people work for the FAA. Some of them were in engineering. Some of them were in flight standards. And if this explosive memo was true, well, that would at least explain some of the unexplained happenings around this one bird. And if there was government corruption, and it was big money, just how high did it go? Bland wasn't done explaining what else was on the memo. In fact, if we want to take the war metaphor further, Bland would drop a neutron bomb on us. Who was on the list? Well, some of the people worked for Department of Justice. Who do you remember specifically on that list from DOJ? Tom Wales was on the list. And now, we are in uncharted territory. Our relentless pursuit of this case has just dropped a big fat you-know-what in our lap. And to be honest, we weren't sure what to do with it. First off, we were openly skeptical that such a document would exist. And second, we aren't exaggerating when we say there was nothing we could see in Tom Whale's past that would be consistent with him being dirty. But as we were debating our next steps on our return from Texas, we got an email from the Blands with an attachment. It was the memo on Bell letterhead that Bland described. So let's talk about the memo. Yeah. So I received this document, what appears to be a facsimile message memo, a top sheet. And at the header, it says, Bell Helicopter Textron, 
In bold letters across the top of it, it says, not authorized for processing classified information. Helen Petty is the author of the memo, and she was a contracts administrator at Bell Textron. And it is addressed to the attention of Jim Burt. Who's Jim Burt? Jim Burt is their chief legal counsel. And Helen writes, Jim, payment has been made to the following people per your instructions for assistance in the 204 retirement program. And she goes on to list roughly 17 people, including Tom Wales. And I just want to point out that his name is spelled W-H-A-L-E-S. And who are these other people on the list? Looks like there are a number of folks who names are familiar to us that were involved in this particular helicopter case, and they are FAA officials. So there's probably close to 10 names on here that either worked specifically on this particular helicopter case, Powell and helicopter, and there also is another DOJ official on here. So it looks like we just have a cover sheet of a facsimile message. That's right. And like every other piece of information we have received, we set about to corroborate it. We couldn't find the purported author, Helen Petty, but we did track down the alleged recipient of the memo, a man named Jim Burt, who was the former chief attorney for product integrity at Bell Helicopters. We are producers. We're doing a podcast and we're trying to put some pieces together on what was going on in the late 90s with these lawsuits and Bell Helicopter. Does the name Helen Petty mean anything to you? I will confess that it doesn't, really. Do you think you might have a couple minutes to kind of help us walk through a couple questions we have about this helicopter program? I'll be glad to discuss it with you tomorrow. Right now... I have a meeting that I'm supposed to be headed towards. Is there a time and place that you can recommend where we can meet? Uh, You're welcome to come to my place. And sure enough, Jim Burt would meet us the following day, although not at his house, but at a local Starbucks in Fort Worth, just minutes away from Bell Helicopter Textron's corporate headquarters. Over jazz music and the din of commuters ordering their lattes, The semi-retired attorney gave us a decidedly contrarian view of the times than that of Chadwell, Bland, and Boatwright. He said Bell was justifiably focused on trying to shut down these unsafe, rebuilt helicopters around the country. It was a safety issue. And he was out front leading the charge, speaking at conferences and writing law review articles on the subject. Jody and I danced around the people mentioned in the document, but we avoided a direct confrontation on the explosive subject matter of the memo as we had no idea what type of hornet's nest we were kicking. Bert seemed like a perfectly respectable gentleman, and we needed to know a lot more about this memo before we started lobbing accusations about him ordering government payoffs. And the first thing we wanted to know was what Gene Bland had told the FBI about the Petty Memo. Did you talk to the FBI about this memo? Yes. What was their reaction to that? I didn't have it with me to show them. But I told them about it, and they I don't remember whether they were familiar with it or not, but I told them to talk to Kim Powell. I don't know whether they did, but I think they did, because he had talked to him several times. I think he had originally, when they confiscated his aircraft, the DOT Office of Inspector General, he turned them in to the FBI, 
that they were doing things that were beyond the scope of what they could do. Kim Powell turned... The DOT, Office of Inspector General, and the Bell helicopter people that were on the team that went out to look at his helicopter, he made a complaint to the FBI. Did the FBI seem to know about that? The guys, Bone and Sousa and Gasparetti? I don't know that they really told me that much, but they were pretty open in talking to me after we got to talking. When you gave them a polygraph statement, did you talk about the memo specifically? Did they ask you about that? Not under the polygraph. Made aware of this allegation of payoffs and not wanting to ask about it while the subject is strapped into a polygraph certainly made us wonder if they really did want to know what they had stepped into. I did talk to Agent Bone and the other guys about it. I'm just curious what their reaction was to that. Anybody? Oh, really I think knew? they were very appreciative and very interested in what I had to say. Yeah. And did, they, I, did they follow up with you I, about it? They didn't call me back, follow me up about it. Did they ask for you to get the memo? No, I don't remember whether I did or not. So it was unclear if the FBI had gotten the memo, either from Bland or from Powell, and equally unclear whether that team, which had locked their sights in tight and early on another case theory, was open to hearing its possible implications. And in this next exchange, the bleeping is not for the pilot's name, but for that of the FAA special agent who had allegedly threatened Bland at the grand jury. The FBI shows up, comes to your office, you start telling them what really is the backstory on this whole helicopter scenario. That seemed like news to them at the time? Yeah, yeah. In what way? They seemed to be real interested in it. They uh, helped them put their investigation together. Did you recount for them this episode with and whales in the conference room? Yeah, I did. And I, I told him, to me, my personal opinion from my encounter with is that he's a nutcase and he would be the suspect that I would have. He'd have, have a motive for doing it. What would his motive have been? Because I blew his case out of the water and he got him and Tom Wales were at odds because Tom shut his case down. And I think he staked his career on this case. Did. Did. And was on the list of people on the memo? Yes. And now, we're up to our ears in a variety of dilemmas. These allegations of payoffs and bribes had a context that would provide credence to some of the oddities of this story. They would explain why Wales pursued such a weird indictment, which lumped together a bunch of people like Chester Raspberry into a conspiracy with the pilot and Powell. And it would explain the curious plea proffer, since that helped ground the bird and helped Bell close out its simultaneous civil lawsuit against Powell and Jackson as well. But could it also explain something else? A possible motive for murder. Had Wales had some sort of falling out with the co-conspirators? Had Wales had second thoughts about his participation? And did it finally start making sense why there were crime scene slugs at Wales' house with six left markings? There was one other gun that left such markings, with a similar land and groove range as the Makarov, a government-issued Colt 380 ACP. As Jody and I struggled what to do with these allegations, as we tried to make all the pieces of the puzzle fit, we had to remind ourselves that very little in this case was what it appeared. 
This so-called simple homicide occurred in the fog of war between Bell and its operators. And there was Tom Wales, once again out front, leading the charge, where it's just as easy to get killed by friendly as enemy fire. And Jim Burt, the Bell attorney and alleged recipient of this memo, was also on the front lines, publicly championing Bell's position at conferences and other speaking engagements. And as we processed all this information, it was not lost on us that this document came from forces on the other side of this war. Nor that there were other known forgeries in this case, including the helicopter's data plate and its chain of title documentation. And there was at least one person in common with all of these alleged forgeries, Kim Stafford Powell, the pilot's former business partner. Powell was also the target of Tom Wales' prosecution, someone who would clearly have a grudge against Wales, the FAA, Jim Burt, and Bell Textron, all of whom were making his life miserable. But here was the other context. This lawsuit filed by the pilot and Larry Setchell in the months before Wales' death would make all sorts of allegations of bad faith between Bell and the FAA. And if Wales was who we thought he was, the prickly prosecutor with the righteous sense of justice, he would have taken those allegations very seriously and likely begun his own investigation of the people who had brought that helicopter case to his doorstep three years prior. And it was none other than self-proclaimed lowly helicopter mechanic Ricky Boatwright who summed up exactly what we were thinking. So when did you learn about Tom Wales's murder? I don't really remember, but it was quite a while after all this grand jury stuff, you know, and it was just in passing. Did you think it was related to this case or? The rumor that I've heard was that he got killed by a pal's buddy, right, you know, because he got tired of fooling with him or something like that. Seeing as how he wasn't charged with nothing and he wasn't convicted of nothing or anything like that, right, it's my opinion, and opinions are like everybody. You know, everybody's got one. I kind of feel like it was a little bit higher up. He probably stumbled across something that he wasn't intending on stumbling on, and it cost him. That's the reason why I was kind of leery about talking to y'all, right? You know, because I don't know who y'all were or nothing, right? And I ain't about to stick my neck way out there and get it chopped off. Opinions like Ricky's and ours are indeed like everybody, but they are most certainly not like evidence. The truth is, the only people in position to get to the bottom of this are the FBI, and we have given them the petty memo in case they never retrieved it 10 years ago. They can subpoena bank records. They can follow the money. They can polygraph witnesses to these events. It is true that we have been hard on them and the prosecutors in this podcast because of the things we've learned and because the case needs a different perspective. Our hope is that they will both investigate or reinvestigate these leads and also let the public know just what happens as a result rather than stand behind the usual veil of secrecy that has produced no results to date. If for no other reason, his family, his colleagues, and his friends deserve to know the truth behind who killed Tom Wales. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? 
Well, maybe we could change Turn the ship another way Somebody Somewhere is a true and evolving story. The investigation into the murder of Tom Wales remains open. It is both a high priority of the Justice Department and us. Jody and I will continue investigating and reporting on this story as developments warrant. But for now, we're going to take some time and regroup and see what more we can learn. If you are subscribed to this podcast, new episodes will automatically download to your phone. And we'll also post updates on the Somebody Somewhere Facebook and Twitter pages. So please join us there. We want to thank the many people who have helped make this podcast a reality and the inaugural production of Rainstream Media Incorporated, a collaboration between myself, your host, David Payne, and Jody Gottlieb. Starting with special thanks to Kendall and Hallie Payne for their marketing, voiceover, and musical support. The full version of Hallie's original song and score for the podcast, Cold, is available on iTunes and will be played right after the credits. Thank you also to Dysfunction, Snowflake, and The Grapes for providing fantastic music under the Creative Commons license for their songs Democrazy, Foolish Game, and I Don't Know. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Every week, Dayton, Colby, and Jacob knocked it out of the park for us. We couldn't have done it without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. Special thanks are also due to Mitch Gelman, Stu Pearson, Tom Kokanowski, Parker Mason, Todd Bishop and the team at GeekWire. And lastly, we want to thank Kathy Payne for putting up with Jody and me for the past nine months as we have waded deeper and deeper into this mystery and for being 100% supportive even when it looked like we were way over our skis. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change.
slowly from inside till I let gravity seize me.